Welcome to the Cycling in Alignment podcast, an examination of cycling as a practice and dialogue about the integration of sport and right relationship to your life. Peter, welcome to the Cycling in Alignment podcast. Thank you so much for making time to sit down and have a conversation with me today. My pleasure, Colby. I'm really looking forward to this. So we met for context. Uh, we figured this out on email the other day. We met at, a, I believe it was Chip Chilson's camp in Moab in probably yeah, 20... Bob, Bob Roll, yeah. Yeah. 2014? 2013? Something like that, yeah. Something like that? It was a, yeah. Mm-hmm. Almost a decade, a decade or almost a decade ago. Yeah. And that was a great camp. I attended that as a coach and I really like Chip's camps. I think that they are uh, quite unique because they're not just about bike riding and, you know, that's it. Then you go and sit in your hotel and drink wine or eat food or whatever there. He really tried to make a more enriched ex- experience for the, for the people attending the camp. And he brought in people like you and he brought in a guy who was a spine doctor he brought in a couple strength and conditioning coaches and it was really off the bike. There were things to do, right? We did stretching sessions. We did breath work. We worked with Ed Harold on breath yep. work. He taught me a lot about breath. I actually met with him a few times after that camp and we got to learn from you about your product, which is called Vespa. So if you would please unpack what your product is for our audience, help us understand what what yeah, Vespa is. And, also, and, I, and as you know, I also talked more as much about the whole concept behind Vespa, which is optimizing your fat metabolism, which Vespa, I, I never sell Vespa as a one trick pony magic bullet tool. It's one tool of many. Mm. Um, and I think that that's really important that what's really nailed me is this whole idea of, of if people can step back from what they're hearing, the messaging they're getting and, st- and just think of a very simple biologically sound evolutionary, uh, developed idea concept that if you think about it, we have virtually limitless stores of calories as fat on us. And we have very limited, um, stores of glucose and glycogen. And, and and to a point that's part of the marketing message of, of, of pushing a lot of high carbs is you only have so a very limited amount of glycogen and but from an evolutionary standpoint, that doesn't make sense because why would you be burning through your fight or flight fuel? That's what glucose and glycogen are. It's your fight or flight. And it's also a bridge energy for when you change your physiological state of, of say, you're, you go from being sedentary to active. Glucose also bridges that gap. So it's, it's a fight or flight and it's a bridge fuel. And, and that, that should be your aerobic energy source because, as I say, primitive man didn't get up in the morning, have a bowl of oatmeal, grab a couple of gels, his spear, and go hunting. You know, he had to go out and hunt and gather as if his and perform as if his life depended on it because it actually did. Yep. And so, if people can really ponder and get curious about that concept about where we came from, where we evolved from what we were created to do before the modern construct, that concept of, of, of using fat as your majority aerobic energy source makes a lot of sense. Um, but 
And then they have to think about, okay, the messaging has all been about carbs, 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 performance. And, and we're not, we're not suggesting for a second, you eliminate carbs. We use plenty of carbs in our diet for both performance, adaptive stresses and, and all that. But it's, it's, we're not using this, this message where you're pushing tons and tons of carbs because the other thing people don't connect the dots are is as far as your physiology and metabolism concerned, all those concentrated forms of carbohydrates essentially boil down to sugar, glucose. Yep. And so that's, that's the, that's the start of it. And then Vespa, the product is something I came across in 2006, a month out from me running my first hundred miler, which was Western States. And when I, when a friend of mine, uh, paleo Paul threw me a couple pouches, he said, Hey, try these. My friend Mojo swears by them. And, and Mojo is this cyclist who, who's a brilliant, he's a psychiatrist, but he's, he's a pretty brilliant guy, but he's also a really good athlete. And, and at that time, a couple of years earlier, he rode a fixed gear bike across the United States. Okay. And the, and the, and the Vespa was like his go-to. And so, um, I, I used the Vespa at Western States and had an excellent run in a year that only half the field finished. It got really hot and there was just a lot of carnage. I was able to finish under 24 hours, basically not really knowing what I was in for. And that got me going on the whole thing. But Vespa is actually an accidental discovery of nature, much like, uh, penicillin, right? Um, some Japanese entomologists were studying the Asian giant wasp, um, known commonly to your people because of the media as the murder hornets, right? Oh. Got to add a little bit of hyperbole. And, <laughs> and this is the largest of the hornet species or wasp species. And it flies 60 to 100 kilometers a day, attacks, kills, and masticates its prey, it's an apex predator, into a food ball and then carries a third of its own weight in that food ball back to the colony to feed to the larva. And the larva gives it this bioactive peptide that triggers it, the, the wash, to be able to access all the fatty acids that are stored in the thorax, the back part. You know, bees, ants, wasps, and termites all have this thorax. It, it, what it is, it's a reservoir of, of fatty acids that this precise symbiotic relationship between two life stages called trophallaxis um, accommodates that. And so what happened was they're like, wow, this is incredible. And then, then they hypothesized because animal cells are like 97, 98% the same across species that this peptide would have the same biological effect on, on other animal cells. So they tested on rats and mice swimming to exhaustion. And when that showed efficacy they, they actually took longer to swim to exhaustion um and they measured things like glucose uh fatty acids all these kind of things when they were doing these tests then they after that they they tried it on humans and and sure enough um they were getting the similar results and and anecdotally observationally over the last 23 years of using of it being on the market that's what we've been seeing and uh, I think at this point that, that data set of real world accomplishments and the athletes are all saying there's something to do the Vespa that allows them to be 
you know, it allows them to reach their potential more. They, they feel like it's really part of their mix. So uh, it's no longer like anecdotal, but there's a lot of real world data out there. And, and we've been taking data. Um, I'm actually hoping in the next couple of years to get a published study done and with a, an independent university, but that's, that's that, you know, academia takes a lot of time. Mm-hmm. You know, we were, we were in, and we were actually with the researcher I was working with, we we're actually doing a test in 2000. We started in late 2019 and, and they were still collecting data in, in March of 2020. And then that just threw the whole thing off. And it's only now we're only now getting to the point where the researcher can start to consider doing another, um, okay. Randomized, uh, blind study. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, that's just how, kind of how it is. So, but we've been forging ahead, uh, collecting data, working with athletes collaboratively and in mostly endurance, including cycling. Um, and over the years, we've had a, we've had a lot of success um, across the boards in sports from from anything as short as figure skating, which we can talk about later, all the way to these ultra endurance events where they're multi day uh, things like RAM. Um, you know, I, yeah. I one what I had a woman finish a solo RAM, and she had a full time job, wasn't her day job to train for RAM, and. I don't know if people not realize this, but more more females have summited Everest than have finished a solo female ram. Hmm. That's how hard that's how hard physiologically uh, the a ram, ram is, is. For, for a female. Yeah. Right. Right. Hmm. Yeah. Um, and then we have other we have ultra runners, a lot of ultra runners and triathletes doing amazing things like <clears throat> a lot of ultra runners doing multi day stuff now and winning hundred milers or setting FKTs. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, um, okay. Yeah. So really this peptide that comes from this wasp extract, we're seeing it as a catalyst to help the athlete access deeper reserves of fat. Is that accurate? It's a metabolic catalyst. Yes. And it, it triggers a higher level of fat metabolism. And, and I'm going to throw a big curveball in here that um, we'll talk about throughout the, the conversation is that I'm talking about fat metabolism, not just fat burning for energy, because mm. one of the one of the biggest reservoirs of glucose that that an athlete can tap into for high level work is when you're properly fat adapted and you're optimizing that fat metabolism. One of the biggest reservoirs people have is uh, gluconeogenesis in the liver. Mm-hmm. And so that's not really talked about because if you're in a high carb environment, the insulin signals to the liver, it won't make ketones. It won't make glucose from liver fat. If you're metabolically fit, if you have a demand, um, and that demand is really high level, like threshold and, and surges and anaerobic, the liver will make glucose without catabolizing protein and it'll make a substantial amount. We've had I've had several people report back to me their glucose hits typically 150 post ride. So they'll hammer like for the last 20 minutes, 20, 30 minutes, and then track their glucose post exercise and they'll see this massive glucose spike. Yeah. And that's, and then what's happening is in that hammering, you're signaling the body it needs pretty big demand of, of fast acting Mm -hmm. 
uh, energy, which is glucose, you know, and maybe oxygen is a limiting factor too. Um, so it'll trigger this gluconeogenesis in the liver to deliver that glucose. And then when you stop, all of a sudden you stop, but then it takes about 10, 20 minutes for the signaling to ramp down that production. It yeah. doesn't happen. So then all of a sudden you get this surge of, of insulin. And as the faster study showed that, 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 that surge of, of, of glucose, excuse me, glucose, um, gets shunted. It's, it's, it's benign because it gets immediately shunted into muscle glycogen. Mm. Right. So and I've had, I've had one guy hit as high as 200 post-exercise fasted, mm. fasted. So no carbohydrates, just a Vespa hammer at the end. And the, wow. they see a big surge. So, so that's a, that's a, that's a really big reservoir and, and young males, young metabolically fit males are capable of that because your testosterone, their testosterone will cover up a host of, of sins. <laughs> Dietary sins. I remember reading that yeah. in one of your, one of your articles or seeing in one yeah. of your videos. Yeah. I love that. Yeah, concept. Yeah. Mm. yeah. 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 Young males, young males. And, and, and to a point, I remember one of the things that got me going years ago, and I don't know if it was at that camp that we met. But I remember one of the guys talking about how he tied one on, you know, just got drunk as crap the night before a ride and had uh -huh. the ride of his life the next day. And that like piqued my curiosity um, because I was already dealing with the fructose thing. And, and of course, we're going on these little things, but, but this is fat metabolism. Again, if you're properly wired to optimize your fat metabolism, fructose and, and alcohol can actually be your friend. And I'm not saying... Mm -hmm. Start don't having drunk. big, I don't, yeah, don't get <laughs> right. drunk every weekend. Don't have a big gulp every time you're thirsty, but the right. occasional hit of fructose or alcohol when you're metabolically fit, that gets shunted into liver fat. And that's the first fat the liver will pull back off to make either ketones, glucose, or free fatty acids for, as metabolites for energy. Hmm. Okay. Okay. And so, so it's, 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 it's just a. Fat, the the topic is fascinating. It goes down all kinds of you know things because um, here's the thing: it's like like I said earlier, glucose is your fight or flight to your bridge fuel, right? So these unlimited fat calories. Not only do we have a limited energy in fat calories, but fat is fat metabolism is responsible for all your cell generating hormone enzyme processes whereas glucose glucose is simply that fight or flight it's it doesn't it other than glucose metabolism which is getting energy in now it doesn't do a whole lot more whereas the whole thing about fat metabolism which which includes cholesterol because cholesterol are fats and proteins and all kinds of other nutritional it's very complex and so you see you hear that word keto a lot in ketogenic diet well, that's just a, like, like a, that's a proxy because ketones, you can simplify it down to ketones, you know, it's sort of reductionist. So ketones are a proxy for fat metabolism. And so you've got all these things going on with fat metabolism that make for this, for me, it's never ending rabbit holes of, of curiosity and inquiry and things to think about and experiment with to get that performance and health benefit thing where we seem to be. Um, you know, anecdotally, I mean, we're seeing that, you know, athletes, when they're metabolically fit, uh, 
you know, they, they perform at a high level, they perform consistently and they've got longevity and they don't have, they, they lose a lot of the, the health challenges that are commonly considered as normal in, in a lot of sports we're doing, you know, the, the trajectory of athletes, the longevity, the, the things like bonking, GI issues, recovery stuff, injuries that, yeah. that tend to develop and everybody just accepts it as normal. Mm. Great. So a couple things I want to ask you about. It, it sounds like we're really what we're talking about. If we're, we're thinking back to neo gluconeogenesis in the liver, yep. we're talking about, uh, there's, there's several parallels I see here, but the discussion is around, are we taking it exogenously or are we creating it endogenously, right? Are we taking on lots of carbs through sugars and drinks and gels and all the things, or are we generating glucose internally through our own biochemistry? And, and even ketones, and because the same discussion you know, happens. Oh, go ahead. Well, the same thing, the same discussion applies to ketones, right? Are we making them right. endogenously or are we taking them exogenously? And this reminds me, look, give me one sec here. I'm going to pull this book out. It's actually under my computer. I was just reading this book recently. This is Body Reading by Thomas Myers, if you know who he is. No. So he's the guy who wrote Anatomy Trains. And okay. this concept directly applies. It's, it's a little more esoteric, but it directly applies to what we're talking about. Let me see yeah. if I can find it here without murdering time. So he talks about the concept of people working from the core versus seeking from the external, right? So this is a little more esoteric, but it's the same idea. It's philosophically so the, aligned with my, my overarching philosophy. That's why I thought I wanted to bring it up because I figured you might tune into this based on some of the stuff I've read on your site. So Tom writes, this is uh, page 67 of his book, which is called Body Reading. Sad but true, the fact is we are not a core culture. Now he's talking about core literally, in terms of core musculature and core recruitment, but he's also talking metaphorically and, and metaphysically. There is certainly more awareness of core due to the work of Joseph Pilates and physiotherapists such as Paul Hodges and Diane Lee, and the call has been taken up by various and sundry modalities, but truly occupying our core is an uphill battle in a culture where perfect breasts, perfect teeth, a pleasing shape to the pecs or glutes, and imitating the cover of allure win out over core values such as authenticity, calm, compassion, and moral strength. If this seems to be ascribing too much virtue to being core aware, I have to say on the basis of 40 plus years in the business, no, it isn't. To live in the core, to truly inhabit it, not just to talk about it, is to experience core convictions and core strength. Based on examination of the art, ancient Egypt, Sumeria, and early Greece were core aware cultures. But from classical times on down to the present, we have been going downhill in this regard, becoming more and more reliant on the outer sleeve muscles and values, with notable exceptions like Albert Einstein and Mahatma Gandhi. Recently becoming very weak and superficial indeed. Some in the younger generation, I'm happy to say, are beginning to reverse this trend, doing amazing feats with skateboards, snowboards, kiteboards at all, and more power to them. So just all of our conversation brought me to that concept, right? So I'd love to hear your... Your well, thoughts. and this, this aligns with my philosophy as, and, and we'll just go off on a little detour here. And one of the things that the, you know, I think that the modern, the modern, what I call the modern human construct, not 
the natural world we evolved in is 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 all about taking us away from ourselves because we get these messaging like oh you're you know if you're a woman your breasts and your ass aren't good enough right. um and if you're a man you don't have a six pack or big bulging muscles and which which I'll tell you we'll talk about the big bulging muscles too cuz that's not healthy <laughs> um anyway i don't mean you have to be skinny but but it's like yeah so anyway this is a part of my core thing and and as a starting point, one of the things I talk about a lot is creating the intuitive athlete. And that is when you're metabolically and biomechanically in your zone, your own feedback mechanism is the most powerful tool you have. It's not the only tool. Um, however, the man-made construct has everybody saying, oh, where's the data? What's the latest shiny object, whether it's the Garmin, the, the ketone meter, and now the continuous glucose monitor, and people are chasing the numbers. Yep. And it's, it's like, I'm a pilot. And one of the things that, that, that I compare this to is when somebody's learning to fly, mm. the instructor will say, I climbed at 5,000 and hold 5,000 feet. And it's very well known in basic flying that you know, newbies will, will chase the instruments and, yeah. and this is the same. So they'll fly up and they'll, they'll, they'll hit 5,000, they'll overshoot it and then they'll undershoot it. And they're, they're looking at the gauge rather than mm -hmm. getting there and holding altitude. And it's, it's an intuitive process in, in our own feedback mechanisms in terms of biomechanics, physiology, metabolism are our best tools when we, when we've got them working properly. Yep. Okay. And so people need to rem know that in that, that unfortunately though, everything in today's modern world is, um, sim oversimplified and it, it points to just one thing. So we're, we're, people are constantly getting distracted from recognizing they have the power within them and they can tap into not just their energy, but their own mental and emotional physiological feedback mechanisms to tell them how to do it. And it's like I say, the data doesn't drive, the data corroborates the experience. It doesn't drive it. And this is completely opposite to what the messaging that's going on out there. And a perfect example in, in for the audience is right now, this fascination with continuous glucose monitors. Yep. Okay. And, and it's a great tool. Don't get me wrong, but it's a tool to verify where you are metabolically and what's going on to, to help you understand and, 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 and hone that intuitive sense. Mm -hmm. And so if you, if somebody steps back and understands actual glucose metabolism and what glucose does and, and how it's, how it's metabolically regulated in the body, it's, it's an absolute disaster to try to control your glucose because when you look at fasting glucose, you know, the ideal glucose level in your bloodstream, it amounts literally, it's very tightly controlled, very tightly controlled. And, and it amounts to literally one teaspoon of sugar is glucose in your system. Mm -hmm. You just do the math. It's, it, it works out to be approximately one teaspoon. It's so tightly regulated and, and sure, our bodies can, can take a, a jolt of, of insulin. They're designed for it if you're healthy, you know, but it's, it's not meant to be chronically 
assaulted with glucose like that all the time and time again. And so when people are looking at these glucose monitors, they're just chasing the numbers just like that novice pilot who's yeah. just going up and down because it's too tightly controlled to do it. Whereas what we're finding, I've got several people now, I've got four or four different subjects I'm working with who are, who are on CGMs, two are type one diabetics mm -hmm. and two are high level athletes. One of them's my team coach, lead coach, Tony Kunvalin, who's a high level age group cyclist. Uh, by the way, shout out to Tony, cause he's the one that got us in touch. Oh, cool. Um, but anyway, what we're finding is, is our approach of, of, of working with getting that base energy of fat going mm. stabilizes blood sugar period. Yeah. It's and, the, and then it's all, the foundation it, upon which you build. That's the right. Or the house, right? That's, yeah. that's correct. That's it's that yeah. foundation. And it's, it's a big part of the skyscraper. Just, you know, the, 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 the glucose is the tip of the iceberg and it, and it, and if you keep it at that kind of thing, it's a very powerful tip, you know, and this is why carbs do what they do. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. but um, if an athlete is dependent on that system only without building the underlying foundation, then of course they've got a sword to wield to change analogies slightly, but that sword is not based on a solid foundation and it won't, it won't cut as effectively. It won't have as big of a reach, right? Is that fair to say to I'm blending analogies, yeah. which might be, confusing. you don't have, it could have a temporary reach, yeah. like, you right. know, as a fight or flight, if you're metabolically healthy and you, you know, you use that, that glucose metabolism for that big reach and that big ask, the body will respond then. But if you're chronically doing that, there's unintended consequences. And like I say, if you're doing a lot of carbs on a chronic basis, it's not a question of if you're going to have a problem, it's when and what it's form. When. Yeah. Yeah. It's when yeah, and what of form. Course. Yeah. Of course. You know, and if I can reverse for a second, Peter, I want to just yeah. frame the conversation in terms of human evolution, right? So it's like, we have to accept there's a natural law present and natural law dominates everything. I think people consistently underestimate this, but if we think about your conversation on, or your points on, on glucose being a fight or flight, uh, mechanism, right. And, or also, uh, you said a mechanism of, of change, right. Of transition, a bridge is the term yeah. you use. And okay. So we look at the modern athlete, we look at the modern cyclist or the modern runner, and maybe they're doing, uh, by enduro by, uh, ultra standards, short events, but four or five or six hour bike races or a running race of say three hours. So you're clearly you're, you're normally using some fat and some glycogen to fuel. You're always type of using some fat right? and some carbs. Right. You're, right. Cause you'd be dead. You'd be dead if you weren't you'd be using dead. any. Fat. Yes. Right. <laughs> but we, so, okay, let's imagine where we do a four hour bike race and we've got, we look at time and zone at the end of the race and the rider has 45 minutes of threshold and 20 minutes of glycolytic power and, you know, a handful of minutes at sprint power and then all the zones before that. And, you know, I'm, I'm sure you would agree metabolic zones. We, we tend to use the term zones when we assign time in zone or when we're slicing up our training. But of course, all these metabolic systems blend together. Um, that's one of the terms I, I like to, I prefer to use more of a thought process that's evolved around intensity spectrum rather than zones. Cause zones imply that there's a hard stopping point. Like at 300 Watts, I'm using 100% aerobic energy. And then at 301, I'm using, you know, 99% glycolytic energy. This is not how the body works. Right. 
Of course. Right. And so they're just artificial boundaries. Unfortunately, modern communication is reductionist. Yes. So it, it, it bifurcates into these like hard yep. thing rather than this n- more nuanced approach that we're talking about. So we have to yeah. be careful we don't lose people here. <laughs> yes, for sure. For sure. And so if we think from an evolutionary standpoint, okay, the rider has whatever the example is, 45 minutes of threshold. That's riding your bike up or running up a mountain as fast as you can at maximum lactate steady state for 45 minutes continuously. Or maybe it's a total of 45 minutes accumulated over that, the duration of that four hour race or whatever. When in evolutionary history, in nature, in tribal, in our tribal existence, when did we ever have an experience of someone being at threshold for 45 minutes? This makes no sense at all. This is a demand that is exclusive to what we, the, as you, as you said, the, the social constructs that we put ourselves through because we decide bike racing is cool and running is cool. And I think they're super cool. I love, I'm a total bike dork. Like I've raced my bike for 35 years, but what I'm pointing out is that it doesn't match any evolutionary demands of our bodies. Like if you're in a 60 person tribe that's hunting and gathering, we're the worst sprinters in the animal kingdom by a landslide right? What was our evolutionary advantage? We went from quadruped to biped, took a huge risk. We had to develop our big brains so we could track animals and scan the threat, the horizon for threats. And a combination with that, we also had to have extremely good balance and a good vestibular system because we went from a, a, a four point base of support to a point to two point. We also exposed our organs and our throat directly to our, our threats, right? Whereas a quadruped, you've got teeth and fangs facing you. So Okay, we took this risk, but, but at the same time, we were, we became the apex predator. So Absolutely. you know, it's like I tell my my vegetarian friends, I've got my eyes in the front of my head, I've got yeah. canine teeth, and I only have one stomach. And so molars, right? Yeah, and yes. molars. And so we were we were stalking prey. We weren't being attacked by prey most for of the, the time. most part. Right, most of the time very rare. So what was our hunting strategy? We we were horrible sprinters. So we walk up to a herd of antelope, and they go, "Oh shit!" They run. Away, they sprint away from us. We use our brains. We use our eyes. We track them. We walk for three hours. Then we find we find them again. They sprint away from us again. And then we track them for another three hours. And then by that time, it's three in the afternoon. And we have sweat glands, which they don't. So we're That's fine. Right. And they're smoked, right? They're basically... Right. Ruminants, ruminants produce a lot of, of internal energy, thus a lot of heat. And so it's not only that we have sweat glands and they don't, but the bigger the ruminant, the more the harder it is for them yeah. to, to thermoregulate. Yeah, right. So then that's our advantage is, but what are we talking about? We're talking about jogging for half an hour, maybe at the critical moment of hunting, maybe jogging. Cause we're never going to sprint to catch up to an antelope unless, you know, maybe for a few seconds here and there, we're surrounding them and okay. So we get attacked by a neighboring tribe. What is that? Three, five minutes tops of threshold or fight or flight. We get attacked by a lion, 30 seconds. Yep. Either, either you make it up a tree and he gives up or your, your lion snack. So you see what I'm getting at? Like we have to remember marathon died. (laughs) He died (laughs) when he got to, to marathon, right? When the guy ran, he got to, yeah. When he got back to marathon, which became to marathon, right? So, right. uh, sorry, maybe the, I don't remember the guy. I was thinking the guy's name was Marathon. It's the it was Pidipides, Thank you. Here's the thing. Here's the thing about him. And it, to a point in the next, in a couple of weeks, the Spartathlon's going along, on. Yep. And so he ran 142 miles before that last 26 miles. And it was ah. all, it was, that's, 
That's I what the Spartan that. Athlon, it retraces his original thing where he was sent to go get troops and all this. Okay. And the last 26 miles was when he heralded to the King of Marathon that they, no, he, the, the King of Sparta, that mm. on the plains of Marathon, they'd driven the Persians back. Interesting. Yeah, okay. he went He went back and forth and he went and, and supported the troops. He, they said he fought, but he probably wasn't a frontline fighter. Yeah. He's probably in a support role. And they, you know, the, the, they, they drove back the, the Persians and then he ran to Sparta and, and that's where he died. So, and, okay. and I'll take this one thing further, like everything you're saying that I want the audience to hold on to this because there was a study and I can't remember the name of the author, but it was out of the university of, of Arizona. And this anthropologist went and studied the Hudsu, which is the still nomadic hunter-gatherer tribe of the uh, uh, Maasai. Mm-hmm. That's what the Maasai evolved from. Mm-hmm. And basically the study said they, they were on their feet all day, but it was like 90 minutes to two hours where they were, their their physical intensity level went from low to mid and high intensity stuff, just like you're describing. Okay. You know, and, and so... We're pushing those limits, but we do have the robustness to do that kind of thing, like do some mm-hmm. climbs, like sustained climbs at, at threshold um, at a high level. It's just that when you do it on carbohydrates, the paradigm is is much different than on a fat-based uh, physiology. Mm. So, okay, maybe you can lay out what, a strategy might look like for an athlete. Like, like let's outline it pra- from a practical perspective. If someone let's, let's, start, let's, let's, you know, we've done a lot of talk about the whole carbohydrate thing. So we bagged yeah. on carbohydrates and I'll, Fair I'll enough. do one last thing. Um, we can beat up on keto for a while so too. This, so I want to frame this. So you got, you've got the push for carbohydrates and I, I'm going to say, yeah, carbohydrates are essential for performance. They're essential for adapt adaptation for fat metabolism. And this, and we'll talk about this later about how, important carbs are to optimize your fat metabolism right because this is a good segue into keto but and you need you remember carbs. louise burke's paper the nail in the coffin right right and then she retracted it after the faster study she she wrote a separate editorial piece maybe we mm. let's oh i'd love to unpack all that sure okay yeah yeah but anyway um to finish up bagging on the on the copious amounts of carbohydrates yeah um a couple of things. Uh, first off is a couple of days ago, I was working with one of my coaches and we were talking about, he sent me an article on, on Ironman triathlon fueling, you know, conventional. And, and there's been a push to increase carbohydrates in bike and, and multi-sports. Huge. Huge. Huge because of the new formulations, right? Yeah. Right. And so I did the math and, you know, I'm going to do a blog on it, but for a six-month lead-up to an Ironman, just conservatively, 12 hours a week, mm-hmm. 200 calories an hour of exogenous intake, two gels an hour during yep. training, and, and your event, that that is set up high carbs, concentrated carbs, and carbs in the diet, like, you know, 300 grams a, a day. Um, anyway, that amounted to 155 pounds of sugar. Wow. A six month lead up. So that's one to one body weight for most people. Right. You're eating your body I weight mean, and sugar right. over six months. Yeah, over six months. And that was fairly conservative because, you know, as, as you just said, there's a big push for elite level athletes to really go. 
It's like, what if you can, what if you can, let's not even go extreme, right? Um, what if you can just cut a third out or a half of it out? Mm-hmm. We all know sugar, too much sugar is bad. It's like, we don't need to cut it all out. But if, mm. if you're, if you're literally eating your body weight and sugar over a six month period, yeah, you know, people, it's not going to end well. And that, and this is the, this is the push. And, and, you know, 99% of the people out there aren't riding in a pro Peloton where they're metabolically trained up to, to handle that. And, you know, and it's like, and even those guys are going to take a hit on it, but they're young and they're male and they can take the hit. So that's one thing. And then that leads to the next thing I wanted to finally say was we, as we like bag on this overconsumption of carbohydrates is that, you know, like a lot of things, nobody wants to talk, like a lot of things going on, hint, hint, um, mm-hmm. nobody wants to talk about those unintended consequences, which are well documented now in the science, in the health stats. I mean, one in four dollars of healthcare go to diabetes. Yeah. And then diabetes leads to things like cancer and heart disease. It's well known, which are the other two. That's the big three of, of the healthcare industry. And so nobody wants to talk about those things, have a conversation. They don't want to warn their people, just pushing the carbs, pushing the carbs. And, and, you know, I agree Mm. with them, but they're not willing to acknowledge, you know, this might not end well. Mm. Right. I mean, it makes me think of a basic, another, we'll say paradigm that I like to explain to my athletes, like there are two parallel tracks, right? One is the diet, the lifestyle and dietary choices, the holistic choices you're making, for your, your overall health. And then there are choices that are made for your athletic success. And I would offer and argue that anyone who's not paid a lot of money to race their bike, those two paths should be congruent and or parallel because, well, it, right. There's no, yeah. Go there's no argument where an age grouper should be doing crazy stuff. That's going to cost them long-term health when they're making $0 they're not supporting their kids. They're not putting their kids through college. They're not buying their kids a future home. They're not setting up an estate. They're not doing any of the things that, or, or gaining the, the rewards of being an elite athlete, whatever those may be, you know, fame and recognition or yeah. gold medals at the Olympics. Right. I mean, those are all amazing goals. I went to the Olympics. Like I, it was an amazing experience. And at that time, in that moment in my life, I could see making some choices that were potentially divergent from my holistic health choices. It depends on how orthogonal they were for me to be willing to make them right. I'm not going to dope, for example, I wasn't going to, you know, I wouldn't soft a leg or have a 12th rib removed. I'm not doing that stuff <laughs> just to give you goofy examples. Yeah. But once that path is over, then it's like those paths need to come be convergent. I mean, let's be real. Like, so. Well, and, and here's the thing. I work with everything from elite athletes, including Olympic gold medalists, all mm. the way down to the back of the Packers, people with metabolic issues. And I'm of the firm belief that you can have both because of by getting back to that evolutionary model of physiology that we we were that millions of years of research, not some stupid paper that was paid for by by industry kind yeah. of state this thing. Um, but it's 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 it it requires this kind of level of conversation and nuance, right? And that is because I, and that's not to say that an elite athlete, like say a marathoner, I perfectly acknowledge that an elite level marathoner, like going into their marathon and all that, they're going to sacrifice a little bit of their health, but 
Mm-hmm. But here's the thing: when you take this route that that of optimizing your fat metabolism, what we do, what we're focused on, is building metabolic capacity mm-hmm. so that you have the matches to burn rather than constantly taking out matches and in your recovery, you're not just putting you're not quite putting back enough matches. Yep. Plus, you're doing other harm, which we can talk about later. And, and that's what ends up why, you know, so many athletes end up, you know, you look at most of your ex-pro cyclists and they don't look very good. Right. right? Cycling. Right. Yeah. It's not a sport that makes yeah. one, of the, one of the exceptions is Bob Roll because he, Bob mm-hmm. Roll, he, he gets out and does stuff and he's not a high carb eater. He eats a lot of meat and stuff and he also drinks. And so his metabolic, he's, his drinking actually supports his riding. Like I mentioned earlier. <laughs> right. You know, uh, accidental so, unintended consequences, perhaps. Yeah, so, but he maintained his metabolic fitness to where he can get away with it, right? Mm. Um, whereas a lot of people that, like you say, that they they used up a lot of those metabolic matches. But what I what I'm suggesting is by getting your your metabolism, because that's all optimized. We focus on the fat metabolism because that's the foundation of all your health, and that's what builds the mitochondria, the cell walls, the lipid bilayer that transits everything in and out. Those are the mm-hmm. two key things in your cells. We're, I'm looking at the cellular stuff because I've had conversations with Jason Coop, who's a big carb guy. He's a CTS guy. And, you know, they push the carbs and they're all about okay. that front end performance. And he one time says, oh, I don't look at that. And so, yeah, that's that's what nobody's looking at is, is let's mm-hmm. start by let's start at the foundation, your cells and your base physiology and metabolism build from there rather than mm-hmm. that end product. And there's a lot of... Um, stuff we can talk about in terms of how that works, uh, and, and, and get there. So mm. segueing into the whole ketone thing, the unfortunate reality of this today's man-made construct and the way we communicate, things have become extremely reductionist and oversimplified. And then they've also become quite bifurcated. Like it's never one, it's always one or the other, not some yeah. blend like you were talking about, you know, it doesn't matter with politics or religion or healthcare. It's like everything gets bifurcated. Nobody's having a conversation. Okay. Like mm. what's, what's working. And, and so this has happened with all this sports stuff. So you've got the high carb people who are, um, they're talking about the carbs and the performance, and there's no doubt about the performance, but they're just silent on the unintended consequences of too much, what is essentially too much sugar in the diet and fuel, yep. Yep. right? And then you got the keto people who are like louding all the, touting all the health benefits of keto, but they're absolutely in denial of the fact that straight keto is going to limit performance, and it's also going to limit the actual potential that fat metabolism offers and that's why mm. you need carbohydrate and you need intensity training now keto is a good way it's a good modality as a first step to get that base established but i want to offer that you know if you've got to be on a high carb diet to perform that's just nothing but high carbs or if you have to be on a high fat diet to keep yourself from being metabolically unfit you got other things to be working on yeah right yeah there are and layers to the people become so focused on those one things like i gotta have carbs my carbs like people 
they become physiologically addicted. So they got to have their carbs to perform. Mm. And, and, and that means there's a metabolic problem there. Same thing with keto. If you, if you look at 30 grams of concentrated carbohydrates or a teaspoon of sugar and you're crap in your pants, <laughs> right. That's not metabolic. That's not wrong. metabolic. That's not metabolic fitness. I'm sorry. You need right. to have, you need to build the metabolic capacity to have the latitude Mm-hmm. To be able to occasionally have something, take a hit of junk food, and oh. it's not going to wreck you. This is such a great point, Peter. I'm glad you made this. I, I um, If I can rephrase a, a moment, how I think about this is, I think in our modern culture, pe- so many people are so lost and they're so unhealthy and they look for the solution, right? So they're, maybe they're eating the standard American diet and then they discover keto. And if you're eating the standard American diet, I'm talking about like Wendy's and Taco Bell and crap like that, that is not actually food, there. complete garbage, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, if you're eating that stuff and you go to keto, you're going to feel amazing, right? Or if you go vegetarian, you're probably going to feel amazing for a period of time. And That's then right. as your body continues to heal and you get rid of all the processed crap that you had in your system, which might take six months or two years, depending on how much crap you had in your system and how strictly vegetarian you go and what the exact outcome is. Then there's a point where probably for most people, not always, but probably many people will start to feel a bit empty and they'll start to miss some things that the vegetarian diet isn't giving you. I'm not here to beat up on vegetarian. I'm just using this as an example. Yeah. And so our, our diet, people are looking for an end point, but the reality is that people's metabolism and their health evolves, right? If they're paying attention it's, it's, and they're, do- and they're not dogmatic. It's, it's yes. a very dynamic process. It's a moving right. target. Right, right. So when we, when we have these dogmatic perspectives about things, I think it, the point I'm making is it's, it's quite dangerous to sit on the pedestal. This is, you know, if you've ever read, uh, the not uncontroversial author, uh, Carlos Castaneda, he talks about the four errors of man, right? And the second error of man, the first is fear. And the second is knowledge. And the error is I learned all this stuff. Let me sit on top of this rock and tell me. I'm going to tell you all the things that I know and all the things you don't know. This is, this is a challenge, right? This is a problem. It's and it's hubris. Of course it is. Right. And, and we can, then eventually you keep learning more and you realize how little, you know, and then you enter the world of Dunning Kruger and you real, you know, right. and then, then you get spit in that washing machine, which is where I feel like I've been for many years. So, well, but, that, but that's the th- that's the problem today is because our communication modalities have evolved to this whole online 724 thing. Yeah. And people are just now it's, it's, it's devolved to this very primitive state of shouting. Who's the loudest, who has the simplest, mm-hmm. easy to grasp soundbite science mm-hmm. that people mm-hmm. can glom onto and are very reactive rather than a thoughtful way. Yeah. Right. That's very important. And then, yeah. and, and it's off to the races. And, and like I say, when you think about it, when you stop and think about it, modern technology is pinging some very primitive fight or flight hardware in our yeah. in our bodies, and not just the dopamine, but just the whole thing, the cortisol, everything, in ways it was never meant, of course, to do. Right. But this is the story of technology, right? We invent this new amazing thing and we have all these unintended consequences. It happens every time we bring out new technology. That's right. There's right. always unintended consequences. There's yeah. and, and it has the 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 promise of of making human life better, advancing us, et cetera. But unfortunately, yep. the 
without addressing those, being cognizant and cogent about how to mitigate the unintended consequences, um, very often, most often in terms of execution, it it ends up uh, not really good. <laughs> right. Uh, and so we, yeah. you know, that's part of that conversation. So, you know, if we can establish that, like even like let's 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 not just bag on the vegans and vegetarians. Let's bag on the carnivores. If you have to sure. be on a on a a diet where you're eating two to four pounds of meat, pounds of meat every meat day, day and, yeah, and right. you're coming and you're, you're, you're talking to a guy who, if you put a 24 ounce porterhouse in front of me, I will eat that 24 ounce porterhouse without blinking an eye. Yeah. Okay. Right. <laughs> okay. So I've got a, I know I've got a bias towards that. So it, it appeals mm-hmm. to me, but uh, you know, stepping back from that, it's like, if you're, if, if you have to do that to remain healthy and not have, you need to be working on some other things like building your stomach and gut. Yes. Um, to yeah. be able to process other food sources because we, while we are our digestive tract, and by the way, just for the audience, just so they know, because I got accused of not knowing anything the other day. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a, bi- I have a degree in plant science from UC Davis. And so it's a biology degree even though it's plant science, I was all my basic ed the first two years was having me getting clobbered by the pre-med pre-vet students. So I retained a, enough of the chem, biochem, physiology, anatomy, all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and the processes to somehow by total randomness, you know, arrive at doing what I'm doing. It's, it's become a very useful tool that I had this. I, I mean, I, I know that without that education, I wouldn't have it, but, um, well, where, where was I? <laughs> well, okay. Let, uh, if I might, I, I just want to reemphasize the point you were making about carnivores versus vegetarians or vegans. And, uh, the, the dots I wanted to connect there were simply that I think a lot of people believe that the end point of their diet is some monastic existence where they never eat a gram of sugar or a pizza or a steak or a, uh, huge salad, or, right? Or Depending on plant. what your belief yeah, system yeah. is. Yeah. yeah or exactly. plant, whatever. And that's the end point of true dietary health is to stay in a center of, of relatively healthy choices, but also not be destroyed by going out for a slice of pizza with a friend or having a beer or yeah. eating a giant salad. Like if you yeah, can't okay. tolerate those things, it's the same as on bike fit, right? If we move your saddle up or down three millimeters and your knee flares up immediately, this is simply a sign that you are nowhere near durable enough as an athlete. We need to improve your durability. We need to make you harder to kill. Yeah. That's the objective, right? That's true right. health, hard to kill. Right. And so part of the reason I wanted to qualify my, my educational background that gives me the tools to do this well, I'm not just somebody who just kind of started scouring the internet, okay, is that when you look at an anatomy survey across mammal species, and this is through a conversation with a UC Davis researcher who was doing um, anatomy work at the at the veterinary school. Um, the anatomy, the digestive tract of a human, and this is just plain facts. This is not even really debatable because this is how we're 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 we are. We our digestive tract is much closer to a dog's than a pig's pigs and bears are what I would consider true omnivores. Mm. We are omnivorous carnivores. Mm. Okay. We, we have 
We have a, we're acid digesters, meaning mm -hmm. we have a very low pH in our stomach. We use bile. Once the acid breaks things down, the bile emulsifies it. Um, we have a, a we have a, this appendix, which is really a remnant pouch of a cecum, which is a larger pouch for bacteria, a bacterial reservoir, biome reservoir to colonize our colon. And the colon yep. is where things get consumed mostly we have we have a biome from from our mouth from when things mm -hmm. enter our, our to where it comes out the other end most yep. of the work is done in the colon to the colon but in our digestive tract we have a biome and we have this appendix which is a very small relative to a cecum which is what horses and elephants would have and it's nothing compared to a, uh, a ruminant which has four different biodigesting pouches to break down plant matter, true true plant matter, and get the nutrition from the biome. It doesn't get it directly from plants. It gets from the, the, the lipoproteins, the elements, all the vitamins. It's from that 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 magic of fermentation, which we, when we that's why it's important to develop our digestive tract, our GI, stomach and gut health, because a lot of those elements are created through that process, but we don't have the capacity like a ruminant does or even a horse or a, a um or a gorilla like a gorilla a gorilla has is a is not is a hindgut digester most mm. of its nutrition comes from its hindgut its colon is twice the diameter and twice the length of a human colon it's not it doesn't have a high a, a high acid stomach and mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. this this is what conferred on us. These are just digestive facts. So it's very difficult when you look at the cycle of life, where we fit on that cycle of life of, of from the biome that's in the soil to the plants, to the ruminants eating the plants, to the predators eating the ruminants and the scavengers and all those different things that fit in this, what I call this grand cycle of life. Um, we fit on that, that predator, um, uh, spectrum and, and because of our brain, our erect uh, biped, which is extremely efficient, it may not be very fast, but it's extremely yep. efficient. And the yep. sweat glands, all the and and the and like what I call the I call it the grand bargain because we traded a big gut for a big brain. And when as soon as we did that, we started using tools, hunting strategies, cooking. And so all those things, using tools to mash things down, um, cooking, all that stuff reduced our dependence on having that really big, robust digestive tract. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, we, we move into processed foods, but just the, the act, evolutionary act of cooking and tools. And, and so that reduced our dependence on having that really super robust uh, digestive tract that other animal species below us in that food chain still need to have yeah and still have right so yeah. you know we're we're to get that nutrition like i say you know and so when you when you um compromise your stomach and gut tract it, it really has some massive implications but again they're more nuanced there's and there's a whole bunch of rabbit holes we can go down there but that's i want to qualify that that that's when you look at that it's not even debatable where we we are on that spectrum yes we can get our nutrition from plants but it's a backup system and mm -hmm. and i follow some of the really good vegan nutritionists and even they say you cannot get all your nutrition from plants you have to supplement with b12 
you got to get your essential omega threes from algae. You know, you got to get your vitamin D two from mushrooms, and you know they they're very clear about this because they know what where the the potholes are. But yeah. you know, you know, and then the other thing that's really important in this discussion of while we're on the nutrition subject, before we I, I go back in the keto thing, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. is the other aspect of it is energy balance. We get too much. We just simply get too much in the modern we're world. Nourished, right? We're over. We're over. Not no. We're actually undernourished. Undernourished. Yeah. But but over over calories are... from the calories. Yeah. Energy yeah. balance is. Yeah. The energy balance is tilted to too much. So so our body's constantly having to deal with too much energy, whether it's too much fat, or too yep. much glucose, or whatever form. Uh, we get too much because that evolutionary model was in perfect balance. You know, we have a hunger trigger and it's an overarching one because it's what got us off our butts to go hunt and gather. And we need, you know, if you, and if you look at humans today, we're so convenience oriented and addicted that we needed a really strong hunger drive to, to do that. Because now if pe- yeah. people can just, if they can just dial their Uber, their Uber eats app, it'll be brought to their door. That's how little we have to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that was in perfect balance. And now because of the foods available, even athletes, most athletes tend to get too much because we have too much food available. We're not doing enough to balance out, but also because of our food systems have changed and all that, our nutritional balance isn't off. So I think that our, by not having that balance, um, we tend to overeat because our body's hunting for those nutritional elements. One good uh, example I use is I like with our program, we, we really emphasize whole animal eating. Mm-hmm. Um, and it means muscle meat, a little tiny bit of organ meat and then, but a lot of skin and connective tissue. Yeah. And you'll get some skin and connective tissue in, in muscle meat, but you won't get much. So you're going to eat, eat too much muscle meat. And Muscle meat, uh, collagen rich foods are just not eaten in modern Western culture. Whereas if you look at traditional cultures, it's part of the diet for sure. And I remember years ago, I was talking with Max Testa until when I first started this, this was before Mm -hmm. that camp Mm -hmm. and Max and I were having lunch in Salt Lake. And, um, I was telling him about this and he says, he, he, he stopped and thought about it. He says, you know, Peter, when I was a little boy growing up in Italy, my grandmother came and lived with us. And this is exactly how she fed us. Interesting. Yeah. Mm. Yep. So, yep. Yeah. And if you look at and, how even a pack of painted wild dogs or something takes down an antelope, what do they eat first? They eat the entrails first. They eat the viscera first, right? Right. That's the first thing. And then the brain and the eyes. And then the muscle meat, you know, in primitive tribes, the muscle meat would be given to the dogs, the hunting dogs as a castaway. And dogs, and a dog's anatomy can handle a higher protein load. Right. Right. Whereas viscera contains more connective tissue, more collagen, and also more, a variety of substances, right. But also higher fat relative to protein, uh, in relation to muscle meat. Muscle meat is obviously higher yeah. protein, lower fat, right? Higher protein, higher iron. But the thing yeah. is, is like, here's the thing. I really stress the collagen yeah. And, and collagen-rich foods. I I would prefer people get their elements from food, yes, than than the supplements. supplements. But most Westerners won't eat it. But when you look at these traditional mm-hmm. cultures, collagen-rich foods are just part of the diet. Yeah, 
you know, it doesn't matter where yeah. you go, like Mexico, like, like I get, I eat typically cause I live in California. I eat menudo con pata sin grano, which is menudo mm. tripe soup with the hoof or the joint without the yep. hominy. I eat yep. that every weekend because it's available every weekend. It's it's a bomb. It's literally a bomb. And there's a yep. good caldo de res would be also good. But then occasionally I'll go to a Vietnamese place and get pho with extra tripe and tendon. Mm-hmm. Right. And, um, you know, I know in Eastern Europe and even like Max, Max Testa was saying Italy, they, they eat a lot of tripe. They used to the traditional Italians eat a lot of tripe. But you go to Eastern Europe, there's a name for tripe soup in every country in 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 Poland, it's Flaxi. In Romania, it's Berta. Mm. Uh, it's a form of borscht in Russia. And mm. so, you know, it's getting this collagen-rich food. And then back to this energy balance thing, when you mm. get the energy balance in place, the amount of food you need to eat, you become so efficient that it's it's scarily small. And and to a point of sustainability for people who are on leaning on the plant-based thing, yep. Um the amount of animal products you really need to eat becomes so small, it's scary. So it becomes mm-hmm. more sustainable. And like, if you're concerned about sustainability and being natural, source your, your, your animal products from sources you, you want to like humanely raised beef, all that. I'm too yeah. poor to do that. So I shop the lost leaders in the supermarket. Okay. Uh, <laughs> right. They put meat on sale as a, as a loss leader produce in season and yeah meat poultry and sometimes fish are put on as what they call loss leaders. They sell them at cost because that gets mm. people in and then they buy all the stuff in the inner aisles that are, that's carbohydrate rich and, and right. profitable like chips, Ahoy or right. whatever. Yeah. Right, right, right. Yeah. So, um, yeah. but that's the thing. If you're, if you're carnivore and you're eating all this meat, it's not going to, it's, it's long. It, it's, it may be a lot healthier than eating garbage, but that's a lot of energy. That's a lot of nutritional density and, and, mm. As, as we're learning, because all of a sudden fasting has become a thing, we've been yep. doing this for years, but autophagy is real. I mean, you need that cell cleansing. You need those times of feasting and fasting. And, and that's another thing I, I really think of as I've thought about this with that grand bargain of trading a big gut for a big brain. We figured mm-hmm. out really quickly that following the great ruminant herds would provide a stable food source. It took a lot of to get it took some risk but yep. there wasn't feasting and famine for most humans there were sporadic isolated events but most humans started to follow the fisheries and the ruminant herds to have that food that stable food supply but it took a lot of energy to to get process and and all that to consume that right mm-hmm. and i think that's also why we were so successful because of our bipedal existence and all that you know as populations grew and tribes got pushed further out they followed different herds and you see that migration out of africa into central asia into europe and it's just following those ruminant herds and then across the land bridge you know across the ice bridge into alaska and and all yep. that it's just just you know following food yeah all following the food and having that just knowing we just knew that that would be a stable um, source and you know you you see this in in people like the Inuit and, and Eskimos today the Laplanders still practice Earth there's isolated people who live exactly this way mm-hmm. so um, it's just what that's one of the things in terms of the sustainability when you get your nutrition right and your metabolism right we become remarkably efficient and the amount of food you need to eat and how well you manage your hunger becomes really pretty seamless because you're burning that 
you're burning the energy source you're meant to burn, which is your yeah. limitless one. Yeah. So, okay, let's, then if we focus a little more on the keto athlete, I think what you're saying is that basically both polarities, both extremes, uh, either complete carb dependence or complete keto dependence have their pitfalls, have their challenges, right? And and what you're- Both of them have these pitfalls, right? And so keto, so let's go to the keto thing. Health benefits are starting keto, like you say, starting from a sad diet, sad lifestyle. Yeah. Going keto is like a miracle, but it's not- it's not the end point. It's like I said, we have a ebook that I have to rewrite, but it's called beyond keto. Mm-hmm. It's about, you know, it's called beyond keto. And so for that reason, because everybody knows anecdotally that if they go deep keto there, they can go all day, but they don't have that. They don't have a few extra top gears, right? Well, okay. Glycolytic metabolism runs on sugar, right? That's right. It's more it's than and it's more than that. Yeah, yeah, it's okay. a fact, and this is the problem. When you go into deep keto, because you're changing that that substrate to an extreme to mm-hmm. to to fat, and again, keto is a proxy. It's a proxy for beta oxidation, which is the much which is the true fat metabolism. Right. When you go to keto, you downregulate the pyruvate dehydrogenase pathway. That's an enzyme, PDH enzyme, that mm-hmm. is critical for quick access to glucose for fight or flight modality. So even if you, if you're deep keto, and even if you do pound the carbohydrates initially, until you ramp up that PDH pathway, you can be doing all kinds of carbs, but you're not going to be able to access them to do anything. And so it's, it's, it's just proven that that, that all of a sudden you lose, you lose that. You lose your top end. You can't, you can't do it. You can't jam up a super short hill. You can't be explosive. You, you'd have a hard time hitting VO2 max, perhaps even. Right? Well, and that's, like, that's where I was going is not only okay. that, not only do you not have that thing, but this is where optimizing fat metabolism is, is as much about using carbohydrates as a tool. Because like I talked earlier about generating glucose from fat in your liver, mm-hmm. well, using carbs strategically, as we say, Yep. creates the adaptive stress to push yourself. We don't downregulate with OFM. We don't downregulate the PDH pathway. We use that mm-hmm. with strategic carbs to get that adaptive stress. Cause every time you push harder and you can push in those other limits, as long as you're not doing it chronically mm-hmm. um, and on that fat basing foundation, you're creating an adaptive stress and you're, you're signaling to the cells. They got to get stronger, more robust. They've got to build more mitochondria you're signaling to your endothelium, your, mm-hmm. your cardiovasculature, that it needs to become more dispensable, distensible so we can move more plasma, more blood, more yep. oxygen in, more CO2 out, more plasma to the skin surface to sweat and thermoregulate. Um, mm-hmm. You're signaling all these things that you can't do on keto. And then so, and then that, again, it allows you to perform on, really get the most out of the carbs for the least amount but it also in by by using the carbs it also increases your fat metabolism so just like how fat can be used for carbs carbs can be used to increase your fat metabolism right i think of them as i think of it as the the spark the carb is like the spark that gets the fat engine going is that a good analogy it's more than that it is okay. but it okay. it is but it's it's way more than that it's like you know uh, the concept of duality yin yang how yeah. Two seemingly opposite things need to coexist 
to have that real harmony and get the best performance. Yes. I think people need to really understand that in this bifurcated and divide, culturally divided world we live in. Yeah. Uh, that's a tough one for a lot of people to to grasp yeah. onto the yin yang, the concept of duality. Mm. I think. Yeah. Okay, two questions then. One is, uh, and Matt, let's do a thought experiment. Let's imagine that we had a normal athlete who was eating some carbs and having collagen and some fats, and then they decide they want to go keto and they go strict keto. So day one, they go to 48 grams of carbs or less per day, and they do that for X number of days, however many, 30, 60, 90. In your opinion, maybe you can't say this, but in your opinion, about how long would it take for that PDH enzyme to be downregulated to the point where when they did have a plate of pasta, nothing would really happen and they'd kind of be uh, grinding. Probably, probably within probably around 60, 60 to 90 days. Okay. Cause, cause when okay. we build back up, when we do our adaptation phase and, and this was a conversation I actually had with Steve Finney, who's one of the most foremost researchers in the keto sphere. Yeah. We figured that the adaptations to get the performance took two to three months. So I would say, I would conservatively say that's probably where it is. And like, usually to make that switch, unless you're really metabolically wrecked, somebody who's reasonably healthy, they might feel off for two or three days, or they might even feel bad for two or three days when they're restricting carbs. Mm -hmm. And then they can, they'll, they'll feel that switch of, of foundation. And then that's the time you get it. You build their aerobic capacity on a fat burning base. That combination is really important because, because this is where like the bodybuilders, the gym rats, and, and a lot of cyclists go wrong is they're looking for that end performance thing, your FTP, your, yeah. Um, your time All trial, max, whatever. And instead of taking the slow build and it's establishing that fat based foundation without downregulating PDH and then building aerobic capacity, because this is one of the things I've, I've, I've sat back and thought about. It's like, okay, we want to build really good muscles, right. To be mm -hmm. powerful and have endurance. So why don't we first optimize the feeding system, the, the cardiovascular, the heart, the veins, the arteries, the capillaries, the capillary beds. And, and this is the, uh, because people tend to go for those immediate gains. We're not paying attention to that. So you get mm -hmm. that fat-based physiology. So you're burning fat as your primary fuel and, and you take away all that inflammation yep. from carbs and insulin. So all of a sudden the cardiovascular is much more distensible, which means those pipes can be a lot bigger volume so you can pump more plasma. Um, and so that is critical. And, and a lot of people that are probably listening to this, if they're in their thirties, forties and fifties and they're, they're serious recreational cyclists, they need to work on that. I mean, yeah. this is why, you know, grand tour riders can do so well as they're young, they're male and they've, they've, built that aerobic fitness up and they're still good fat burners. They haven't, but somebody who's, you know, becoming carb sensitive and, you know, has some other markers like their insulin's going up, they need to get, get, uh, do a metabolic reset and then build that aerobic base first. And then you, you, so it's going out and, and pushing the duration initially, but as yeah. soon as you can push out to what I call a golden window of like three hours of constant aerobic work, Yep. Two to three hours. I mean, I, I'm just taught, you know, then you start, as soon as you get to that level, then you can start to add in some interval and tempo type stuff, um, to give that adaptive stress to move up. 
And that's yeah. building that metabolic capacity. As you build metabolic capacity and address all these items that you need to address to get your metabolism where it should be, you build that capacity. And then all of a sudden your carbohydrate tolerance increases. We've seen that time and time again, mm. you know, that all of a sudden you start bringing in the carbs, the carbs start to work. And, and that's why we want to try and do that before that 60 days, like between three and four week, week three and week four, we start to bring in carbs during exercise strategically. Like if you got to climb five, 10 minutes before that climb, take in a little bit of carbohydrate. And that's usually half, like instead of a like hundred calories of gel, 50, 50 calories, 30 calories will work really well. Yep. And, and, and you want that blood sugar spike to coincide with that extra effort. Yep. Right. Okay. Interesting. And then, and then that builds that metabolic capacity. And so you got both the fat based metabolism and the carbohydrate based metabolism working in, in, in conjunction with each other to provide the signaling to bit, to when you go into that recovery phase, right? Rest and recovery are really important that the body's going to build. And, and to a point, um, if you look at some of the athletes I'm working with, and especially at their age and, and the amount of racing they're doing, they're just basically going from race to race. They mm -hmm. peak race, recover a race. Yeah. So what about, we've talked about world tour men and, and then age groupers needing to activate their fat metabolism a little more by, by maybe focusing on aerobic conditioning and riding on a reduced carbohydrate diet for a period of time. But women are inherently better fat burners than men, generally speaking, correct? And, and so what happens when we get a woman who is a world tour rider? Do they have as, by requirement, do they have as much emphasis on that fat building metabolism? Or are they sort of wired to do that automatically? Or am I incorrect about that? Women, women are, women, like, it's like I say, with men, we're simple. I mean, literally we're, we're dirt simple compared to a woman. When you feed us, you bleep us, and you put us to bed. There's nothing more to it with a male. <laughs> That's our priorities. Okay. Right. Uh, and, and, but with women, everything's com everything's complicated from their thought and emotional process to their physiology. However, to answer your question, biologically, a woman is a hyper fat burner because they're made, a woman's physiology is made to, to eat and save for two. Yeah. Okay. That's their biological imperative in terms of nature's concerned. Take all the humanity out of it. A female is there to conceive, gestate, uh, childbirth, and lactate and get that next generation on. And I, not, I hope people don't take me as a toxic male here. I'm just talking pure hard science. Yep. Um, and so late gestation, so they're, 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 because they're eating and saving for two, their hunger triggers are more sensitive. They can, they'll store more and all that. But the, but the, amazing thing about a female physiology is late gestation, childbirth, lactation. Those are periods where the, the female is impaired at hunting and gathering and you can't in mammal species, you can't depend on the male to be around, um, to provide for you. You have to be a self-sufficient unit going back to our earlier conversation about that for self and that's just self-sustaining thing. So they become hyper fat burners and, and, to a point, one of the things that got me thinking about this whole thing is um, I've had some really fascinating 
conversations with dairy nutritionists because ruminant nutrition is like when it comes to the biome and nutrition in the biome, you know, because the biome is a big topic, right? Right. Right. Huge. They're, they're 50 years ahead of us because that's how a ruminant gets its nutrition and, and calories is through the biome. But anyway, fascinating conversations that got me really thinking about this with a female is because of the breeding and production schedules of modern dairy cows, they treat a female, a female cow's a female, right? They're treating dairy cows like a, uh, like an elite athlete. Just the metric is milk production and they're pushing those cars. And so what happens is because of the breeding and the feeding and the push for that milk production, um, what happens is when a, when a, Cow calves, they have to, uh, the dairy, the dairy has to manage that cow very carefully because as soon as she calves, she'll go into this hyper state of ketosis. And if you don't manage her right to keep her from going hyper keto, she will literally take all the reserves in her body and put it into milk production to, for that. Uh, right. Yeah, and, and that got me thinking because I remember when I first went to Central America in 1985 on a motorcycle. I mean, if you ever saw the motorcycle diaries, that was me in 1985. Okay. I don't know if you ever saw that movie. No, no, I'm familiar with it, but I've not watched it. Yeah. The mo motorcycle diaries. Watch it. You'll like okay. it. Okay. Um, anyway, I remember seeing young women who had a couple of kids and then they had one on their breast and, and literally they looked like that dairy cow went to hyperketosis. It was literally the, the body had gone into hyper fat metabolism. Yep to feed the, the next generation, you know, and then that's where, you know, males are like, like in the insect species, males are expendable after the seed is planted. Females <laughs> are expendable after the, 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 the children are old enough to fend for themselves. Right. right. Um, so females are, um, hyper fat responders and, and because there's a spectrum in femininity and there's actually a spectrum in males, but it's a much narrower spectrum. Mm -hmm. Um, and then every once in a while you have that very rare thing where somebody is born with undetended testes, it doesn't quite make that jump, but you have a yep. spectrum of females. And so depending on that, that, and a whole bunch of other things, the profile of their biome, antibiotic use, um, stress levels, a woman is, you know, it, it really depends. It's a very complex dependent thing, but women, so, so you kind of have to, with a woman, it's all about the. I'll just say it this way. It's all about the seduction. You have to trick the body into saying, Hey, it's okay. I can let go of the fat. Uh, right? So they don't harvest it or retain it too much. They can use it for fuel. Is that what you mean? That's right. That's right. Okay. Okay. So, so, yeah. you know, and, and as to a point when they look at female performance, like one of the things I've, I've really looked at carefully is like a woman's port, performance can be diminished anywhere from five to 40% from mid luteal through menses mm -hmm. because that's the time when the, the egg dies, it's no longer viable and the uterus to, to shed, to, to get rid of that egg and all that, it, it, the, the, the lining of the uterus becomes very inflamed and that's how it sheds the lining, which leads mm -hmm. to menses. Mm -hmm. And, and so that affects performance, but depending on where that woman falls on that spectrum and, you know, what she's eating, what she's stressed about, how much she's exercising at what intensity level that can have all kinds of impacts on, on her fat burning, on her performance. Mm. And of course on her moods, right. That special time yep. of the month. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Um, and so it's, it's just, 
So in terms of females, I work with a lot of female athletes and it's, it's always, I, I learn so much because it is a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's an up, le- up level of, of a Rubik's cube with female athletes in terms of it, but, but it can be done. And the, the female athlete should not get so much, even though she's competing, she has to be in herself, meaning, okay, I want to get to my potential not the potential I need to beat somebody because there's like you look on the spectrum of females and there's some females who look like guys, right. Mm -hmm. And they don't have hips. Um, you know, they have big shoulders. I mean, they, they, and it's not a, it's not, it's just the physiology of that spectrum Mm -hmm. and, and they're just better. They're going to be better fat burners and athletes in a lot of ways. So it's like, there's a whole bunch of strategies a woman who's say in the middle of that spectrum can use to um, compensate for that. Right. Right. Or take advantage of her strengths. And yeah, just exactly. like, I mean, it's the same yeah. task for any coach is to know the athlete really well. And it's the same task for any athlete is to know themselves very, very exactly. well and understand their limitations and their strengths and, and, and be comfortable with that because it's, it's a very yeah. unique thing. Right. Yeah. 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 So, so yeah, that's, that's, mm. yeah. Women are, women have the potential to be hyper fat burners no matter where they on the, on the spectrum, but it, there's no cookie cutter to get all women, one, one path to get all women to turn their fat switch back on. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Okay, cool. So, okay. I have another question for you and maybe this will parlay into some more discussion, but you're talking a lot about how to go back to carbs for a moment when we're ingesting, you know, insane amounts, 155 pounds in six months of sugar to train for an Ironman, for example, if you're training 12 hours a week, that sugar ingestion is going to have a lot of implications, right? It's going to have a lot of potentially insulin manufacturing and a lot of inflammation, those types of things. But also the insulin response is blunted during really hard moments of training and racing, right? So if you're, if you're doing intervals yeah. and you're slamming gels, you don't get an insulin response then because it goes right, it's right into the furnace. Correct? Yes and no. It depends on where you're on the spectrum, right? If you're, if you're okay. insulin resistant, yes, it's going to be blunted, but it's going to be more than somebody who's highly insulin sensitive and has low insulin. Okay. Right. That okay. blunting of the insulin. And to a point, like one of the ways I've thought about this a little bit, but one of the, you know how a lot of the ketone esters, they have to take them with carbohydrates and bike racing to get the punch. Yeah. Yep. Okay. That's part of the reason they do that is because when you take the carb, you get the insulin response, however muted it is, mm. you still get that insulin response and insulin drives the ketones and the glucose into the cells. Yeah. Because yep. if you take a ketone ester on a no carb environment, it doesn't go it into doesn't cell, work. just. It doesn't really, it, and then it, it doesn't really increase performance. You might be able to go longer, yeah. okay. but you don't get that pop. But, mm-hmm. but when you, when you take in a ketone ester and then give yourself a hit of carbs, it's, it's like, wow, you just got to, you got two more it's fuels like coming injection. in from the outside. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I've played with the uh, ketone aid, the KE4 a bit, uh, a few years ago. Yeah. And just, just to understand it and experiment. And I found I had good results with it largely, but I'll say. Two of my challenges were one, um, it violated one of my principles of health, which is don't eat anything refined, right? As a general rule. Now I'm not orthogonal. I'm not, I'm not orthorexic about that rule, but I, I don't eat a lot of processed foods at all. 
uh, and I avoid certain foods are toxic to me and, and kryptonite for me. So I just don't eat them, you know, things like ding dongs and McDonald's and stuff. I haven't had fast food in well over a decade. Twinkies, Twinkies, yeah. yeah, all that crap. So, so the ketone aid violates one of those principles immediately because when you put it in your mouth, if you've never had it, it's, there's nothing less natural in the world that I can think of just about it's, it's the most synthetic, weird, oily, watery substance. And so you taste it and immediately it's like, I was taken aback by it. I was like, wow, this is I've a never, weird. I've never had it, but the, but just knowing the formula from my OCAM days in high school and college, yep. it's like beta yep. hydroxybutyrate. This is like, this is like what they use to cover fabric airplanes. Right. Butyrate <laughs> right. Dope. Right. Yeah. And it smells like butyrate dope. Yes. And yeah. I'm like, it's like, yeah. like I've got, I've got in my shop, I've got methyl ethyl ketone and all that stuff. And that's what it, it reminds me of is all these right. solvents that we use. So I'm telling people, and you I, know, I'm, I'm a hippie. Like I tell people, you know, if, especially just yesterday, I had two conversations with athletes about saddle sores and they're both telling me, yeah, I use alcohol and all these extreme soaps. I'm like, you got to stop doing that. You're killing your biome. You need to use, I recommend Dr. Bronner's. I'm, I'm a hippie, man. I, you know, I use natural soaps, lotions, we have to let the biome heal. And so it's the same well, we principle. Gotta like you, We got to get you to inoculate yourself with nitrosomonas eutropa then. Mm. Yeah. Tell me. Oh, this is part of my OFM stuff, but it's one of the more esoteric sections. Okay. I had not, years ago, I inoculated myself with nitrosomonas eutropa, which is a nitrosomonas, nitrosomonas bacteria are endemic to the environment. And they exist principally in geyser pots where there's a lot of sulfur and stuff okay. and where animals urinate. So when you look at a horse or a giraffe or a hippopotamus or an elephant dusting themselves, they're mm -hmm. dusting themselves essentially where they've been peeing. Mm -hmm. And it's because the nitrosomonas bacteria are ammonia oxidizing. They're not carbon oxidizing. They're ammonia oxidizing bacteria. But because of that, they're slow growing. They don't compete well. They need a, a high ammonia thing uh, environment to do that. And our, our sweat has ammonia in it, has nitrogen compounds. Right? And, and so what it does is it converts the ammonia that's in our sweat into nitric oxide, which is a potent vasodilator. Yes. So yeah. it helps your skin be better. Clearer. But also at the same time, it totally does away with the with the ammonia smells and then yep. the downstream even worse smells you get by getting in everything else and fueling other bacteria so right. it, it won't take care of the sweat gland smell but it, it will take care of, like i used to go for these lunchtime runs in the central valley where it'd be 90 100 degrees and i come back and smell like i urinated on myself yeah 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 i know what you mean right? there are athletes right? like, who come to my fit studio and i have the same experience yeah. Right, right. And usually they're on high protein meat diets because they have a lot of nitrogen they're excreting. Like yep. you won't get that so much with a vegetarian unless mm. they're eating a, a, a protein because protein uses an amine, which is a nitrogen compound. So would and this technique be useful for someone who uh, has challenges with gout or increased uric acid levels? Not, not so much internally, but that's part of the whole thing. You, you know, like I inhale it, I inhale it through my nostrils to help okay. colonize my my, you know, my, your biome, my biome, right. the biome that's in my, uh, my airways. Right. Yeah. Um, but there's a lot of strategies 
there's a ton of strategies you need to use to increase nit- endogenous nitric oxide, but this is topical nitric oxide for the most part. Yeah. But it, it's critical, like you, you know, when you're talking about that, but you can't you can't use the commercial soaps. Like I use Castile soap and I use mm-hmm. for the shampoo, I use a body wash, the honest body wash that you find in the baby section at Target. Yeah. Because it doesn't have the it doesn't have the yeah, it doesn't have the chemicals that that kill yeah. this this nitrosomonas bacteria. Your standard soaps, including ivory, will will kill it. Oh yeah. Basically, yeah. Basically, what we've done is we've sterilized our bodies. Yes. This is the point. Important- I make this point all the time when I talk to people about saddle sores, and then they they ride in their kits for two, three, four hours. They put their kit in a hamper immediately, so it sits there for four or five days, just growing whatever it's growing, right? And then they go again in the shower and they nuke their system with these soaps right. that are way too strong, and then they probably aren't nourishing their skin with any kind of healthy. Well, and if they're on a high carb diet, when they're they're on a high carb diet, they don't get the the blood flow to the skin cells like they should Mm. because, because of that inflammation and because they don't have the nitric nitrosomonas bacteria, they're creating the nitrous oxide. Interesting. Like I, I found since that, you know, all kinds of subtle, it's anecdotal. I know, you know, the, the science nerds out there will attack yeah. the lack of science, but you know, my skin breathes well, I sweat better. Yeah. I don't stink, but you know, and I don't, I don't have like, I heal well from minor cuts and bruises. Like, and I'm old, you know, I, I should be not healing well. Mm. And so well, in theory and, and, based on, yeah, but this is part of the normative observation. Right, right. Right. Yeah. And, and so this is just like, we go back to that cycle of life. This is part of the endemic biome in the soil. That's there to, as part of our cycle that animals do it. And, and the discovery of this for, for human application, and they're doing clinical trials and wound healing. The company doesn't produce the product for consumers anymore. And I'll mm-hmm. show you how to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but their, their, their main goal was to monetize it through, through patenting as a medical thing for, for uh, wound healing and all that, because it 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 you know it it creates that breathing and blood flow, and this is really important because I think the whole fear of skin cancer has to do with lack of nutrition through a high carb, low fat diet. The, yeah. You know the fear of the sun, right? Mm-hmm. And oh, then yeah. you add to that low vitamin D, um, low exercise level, and then you you know you end up with a bunch of problems and but it's so this is a critical bacteria that that needs to be you know colonized on our skin once you have it colonized like i still have a little bit of the stuff left and i'll start buying it because you can buy it for, for as a soil amendment okay but i i don't colonize myself i mean once once or once a month i may spray a little bit somewhere but once it's colonized you don't need to I don't need to. It's not that I start smelling bad. It's just that, okay, I got a little spritz of you thing. Here's a booster. But I, okay. I, you know, I've been colonized for like seven, eight years and mm. just been, been fantastic. So that's, that's, yeah. you know, when you're talking about the skin stuff, but, but see, we go, I told you we we're going to get down a rabbit hole. I, this is great. I love it. I'm so happy, Peter. Thank you. And you know, that reminds me of the Jack Cruz podcast, which I brought up to you in the email. And I guess you did someone else send you that uh, podcast as well yeah. from Dr. Jack Cruz. And just to, catch my audience up. This is a, a conversation that happened on, uh, Rick Rubin's podcast. Rick is a music producer. In case you don't know, he's produced every band that you probably ever know. 
uh, Nine Inch Nails, U2, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, Snoop Dogg. So he's a massively famous guy, but he started this podcast recently and he has, he's friends with Dr. Andrew Huberman, who's a neurologist, a well-known neurologist who has his own show. And Dr. Cruz has been basically slaughtering Huberman on Twitter for a few years now because he's convinced that Huberman is missing some really important basic things. He's told his teachings, he and, so, he and, he and so much of the online gurus are missing. They're missing the, the whole point. Mm. I'll say so, it. I, 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 Jack yeah. Cruz, I've been following Jack Cruz for years. The guy is brilliant. Mm. Brilliant. The problem is he's talking five levels above everybody. Agreed. Agreed. And it's hard. People confuse that with ego at times, which is one of the biggest challenges. They're like, this guy thinks he's the world's biggest know-it-all. It's like, well, He's talking five levels above most other people. So from that perspective, he is, but it doesn't mean he's yeah. full of ego, but yeah. Yeah. Whether he is or not, it's right. It's, Who cares? Like, just learn from you know, I had all these classes <laughs> in quantum physics in at Davis and it's like, I took physics, mm-hmm. university of physics and they were talking about the stuff at the time because that's what was researched yeah. way back in the eighties when it's late seventies, early eighties where I was in school. And, and that was a big topic. Mm-hmm. And then of course, as studying plant science well how do plants get their energy from sunlight right boom right and then we we you know and, and so everything he's talking about is is there's relevance but it's 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 hard for people to connect that they're looking at that okay a goes to b jack's going a goes to c to b to e, you know and then it eventually, eventually ends up here and people just yeah. you know with this soundbite science we're being fed these days and Mm-hmm. And this focus on studies, you know, published yeah. papers, um, yeah. looking at one thing, you know, Jack's talking about this cohesive model um, tied to like things like light. And and that brings me to a real good point. One of the key things I learned early on in this, this journey of fat metabolism um, was that vitamin D levels were crucial for, for, for performance level fat metabolism. It wasn't just a diet. It was, you had to get, so I have a, the, what I call Peter's vitamin D reference range. And it's, and because the medical reference range is, is pathetic and I'll, I'll explain why it ranges depending on which one you look at. It's either 20 to 30 micrograms per deciliter up to a hundred. So 20 to 30 to a hundred is the medical reference range. Well, my reference range is like anything below 40 is deficient. Mm -hmm. 40 to 50 is suboptimal but it's not bad and then you really need to be 50 to 80 you can go higher i we have athletes go real high all the time but it doesn't seem to affect them one way or another but like to keep that in that 50 to 80 range and okay. it, it and you know in the last three years there's been a lot of studies coming out about virus um serious viral infections and it's and it's pretty clear if your vitamin d if you're metabolically fit and your vitamin d is 50 or above your chances of having a bad viral infection are way, way, or, 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 yeah, yeah, essentially zero, but in science speak, they say it's, it's really low. Right. right. And so there's a lot of benefits to that. It helps with hunger attenuation, it helps with inflammation. Yeah. Uh, it helps for fat burning capacity. I mean, we, you can't get somebody to burn fat if they're low vitamin D. And when I think establish those really low reference ranges, was that was all developed in the days of industrialization before refrigeration became common in the household. Mm. Right. So people were eating 
a, a lot of their diet was what Western Price calls foods of modern commerce. So shelf-stable yeah. foods, yeah. high in carbohydrates. They were living in urban environments. And and so that was all developed during the, the age of in industry where people were inside, poor diet, and the rickets, the pellagra, the preeclampsia, all the yep. diseases. And be, But because their diet was so poor, they couldn't give them too much because their metabolism wouldn't handle the higher vitamin D loads. And so that 20 to 30 was just enough to get them asymptomatic of the disease states, yes. uh, the symptomatic disease states, but it was far from getting them to the metabolic health state. Actual health, yeah. And you have the re robustness, resilience, and the ability to burn fat instead yeah. of your fight or flight fuel. So that's right. another key, key thing. And so, and then you think about it, and I read a lot from Michael Hollick, a lot of the studies that Michael Hollick did, and he wrote a book. He's the foremost researcher in vitamin D. But when you think about it, most people in northern latitudes don't get vitamin, any vitamin D from UVB in the winter. And we live in mostly indoor environments under artificial light. And, yeah. you know, if you're out there in the midday sun, like from an evolutionary standpoint, from an evolutionary standpoint, point is a hunter or gatherer, you're getting hundreds of thousands of of IUs of vitamin D each day. And, and as a point, you know, you look at how humans evolved at the tropical latitudes, darker skin, because they were getting blasted with sun all year round. And then as you go move to the higher latitudes, lighter and lighter skin, because you had that two or three month period where you had to get all you can get and store it up. Mm -hmm. And, and that's how, you know, skin tones evolved. Mm -hmm. Okay. And, and another point back to the women <clears throat> saving and eating for two, this is why in, in certain types of people, you know, from a certain group, wherever they basically evolve, the women always have lighter skin tone. Interesting. Oh, interesting. Because they were hunting and gathering less. Well, they're hunting and gathering right. less and also they had to save up more vitamin D. Uh, yeah. Okay. More melanin. For the, yeah. for the yeah. building, building of another body. Right. That makes sense. That makes sense. Yeah. I love it. Hello there, Space Monkeys. You've made it to the end of our discussion, or at least the first half of the first discussion. And we're going to give you some options to try out some Vespa with spectacular savings. So thank you to Peter and the team at Vespa for making this available to the audience. There are two options. Both of them involve clicking on a link and one involves a code. I'm going to tell you the link because you can probably just type it in and get there. It's vespapower.com forward slash coupon forward slash alignment 25 25 is spelled in digits it's not spelled out in alpha characters forward slash so yes there's a forward slash at the end of that one more time that's vespapower.com forward slash coupons forward slash alignment 25 forward slash in order to use that coupon you will use you will enter the code alignment 25 that's an all lowercase. You have to know how to spell alignment correctly. Because we did. So you got to spell it right. So the code is alignment25. That gets you 25% off your order. There's also a sampler pack that Vespa can offer you. And it's $40 worth of free Vespa products to try. But you have to pay shipping, which is normally 20 bucks. So 
there you go. It's $20 worth of product. You're paying $20 for $40 worth of product and you get free shipping is another way to think about it. And in order to activate that offer, you'll want to go to the link in the show notes. So I will put, we will put both those in the show notes. Go forth and check it out. As you know, I only recommend products that I've tried myself and believe in and Vespa thus qualifies. And before you go thinking that I'm financially benefiting from this relationship, I am not. I'm not getting paid to sell you guys Vespa. So that's my transparency statement on that. Go forth and enjoy. Uh, You'll want to read on their website about how to use it. There are also some instructions that are included with the product. And let me know what you think. If you have good experiences with Vespa, come tell me on the Instagram or tell them. If you have bad experiences or confusing experiences with Vespa, also tell us and we can discuss because this will not normally be the case. Thanks for listening. Pedal consciously as always. I hope you enjoyed this discussion. Epilogue. I want to share a few brief thoughts about the inception of cycling and alignment. The purpose of this podcast is for me to get three and a half decades of hard-fought lessons out of my skull. Some of them through my own research and reading. Some of them I've been taught through mentors and colleagues, other riders, other racers. A lot of it, a massive amount of it was simply trial and error through my own stubborn methods. And that has amassed a certain amount of experience and knowledge, understanding. And while I think I'm reasonably smart and I know quite a bit of stuff, I want to make it clear that the opinions that I share on this podcast are belief systems built on what I've experienced to this point. And that some of those opinions are pretty strong, but they are also loosely held. That is to say that if I learn more about a topic and have a greater level of clarity or understanding, then my old belief systems will be abandoned and I will now operate under that newfound knowledge. So I'm not here to tell people all the things that I know. I'm here to explain what I've learned to this point. And there's a big difference. Also, that is the intent when I discuss things on the pod with guests is to learn from them and have a discourse. Because if we can't have a discourse, as adults, then we've lost one of the basic tenets of modern society. Even if we disagree, we ought to be able to, in most cases, shake hands and walk away. Because after all, this is sport we're talking about. And while sport is training for life, it's nothing to get too upset over. The purpose of the podcast is to help me help other people and specifically to help them actualize their highest potential by illuminating a path that enables alignment with their truth, their intent, and their coherence. That's really the end goal. So I'm grateful for your listening. My intent is also not to be clear to gain an audience or become popular or gain social status in any way. I don't care about that stuff. 
that said, if you feel an episode that you have heard will help someone you know, please share it with them. That helps us reach the end goal, which is to help more people. Thank you for listening. I'm grateful for your time and attention. Blessings. Blessings.